So then, if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast, making sense to everyone who listens, whether they like it or not, on land, sea, air, or in outer space. Yes, you said it. <laughs> I did say it. <laughs> you God. said it, partner. Hi, folks. I'm Lance Fever Myers. And I'm LB Dio. This feels so weird to be recording our, our live Persistence of Vision podcast in this giant place to this fantastic audience of yeah. two, three thousand. Give yourselves people. a hand. Yes. Thanks for showing up and thanks for tuning in. <laughs> of course, again, this is Persistence of Vision. Um, we uh, have a, a website. It is pov-publishing.com. There you can read essays, poetry, and comics by world-class artists. You can also see the links to all the other podcasts we've ever done and links to go buy my book, Why So Much, my other book, Clash of the Christmas Clones. What else there'll be? My book, The Goddamn Fool. God, God damn, it. damn right. And today we are particularly pleased, and by today I mean tonight, we are particularly pleased to have with us none other than the most sought after man in Austin Entertainment, <laughs> Mr. Owen Edgerton. Whoa! We started this podcast to have Owen on. Is that true? And, and it's finally come wow. through. That's true. We said, how are we going to get Owen Edgerton on, to sit next to us? Just start a podcast. We got to start a podcast. He'll sit next to us to do that. We did it. It's finally coming He true. loves to hear himself talk. I sure do. <laughs> I really do. I did it for the hat. I like the hat. I needed the hat next to me. You yeah. know what? I actually, before leaving the house tonight, I, I asked my wife, Jody. I said, hat? No hat. Because <laughs> uh, I often put on the hat if it's sunny outside or I have, I have not had taken the time to actually comb my hair. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And she said the hat looked cute. Cute. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that feels really she... good. When your wife says you look cute. That's an understatement. The hat, is, the hat is very It's cute. been a big night for hats here at the North Door Theater yes. as we just completed an, another thrilling episode of One Page Salon. And, uh, LB, you, you read a beautiful piece. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, was, you exaggerate, of course. I do, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was good. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That was from the goddamn fool, goddammit. Yeah. And uh, speaking of books that are probably going to live forever. Huh? What about Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions? Have we anything to say about that book? I think, you know, almost the name has come up in so many of our podcasts, and it's finally here that we get to actually talk about the book in That's depth. That's true. Of course, um, it always comes up in the context of Wheaties cereal, not in the context of <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut. That's a great, great uh, um, starter for the night. Uh, why? Owen. Yes. <laughs> Why is this book called Breakfast of Champions? Well, he, he, that's a great question. It comes up, I guess, it comes up in the introduction where he makes clear that he does not own the copyright to the phrase Breakfast of Champions, that this is actually, uh, it, it's actually, a, a, of course, a, a commercial. Uh, but then, I guess the waitress, the waitress towards the end of the book in the lobby of the hotel, she's the one who says it. It's when it finally appears in the book. Mm -hmm. And she's serving a drink and ironically says... 
Breakfast of Champions. Yes, Martini, yes. I believe. If yeah. I'm not entirely mistaken, which, after all, has been a fine breakfast for many a fine man, <laughs> woman, and child many in this champion. great republic. I don't know if you know this. I mean, of course, Lance, you suggested the book. I'm a big Vonnegut fan, as you guys are as well. And I don't know if you know this, but my first novel, which has been read by... Eleven people. Eleven. Eleven people. I'm, I'm one of them. Oh, you're, you're referring to a Book of Harold. No, right? actually, no. my first novel is called oh, well, Marshall then maybe I'm Hollinser. Not one of them. <laughs> Marshall Hollinser is, is driving, and not many people know Marshall Hollinser is driving. I self-published this book way like '99. Okay. And in it, I mentioned Vonnegut quite a bit, or, mm. uh, not quite a, a few times. And at one point, uh, someone actually talks about a homeless man. Talks about, listen, I this I every morning I need to have. Uh, barley that has been watered down and <laughs> left to ferment over uh -huh. a period of time. Mm. Uh, it's the Breakfast of Champions. And I make a reference to Breakfast of Champions in that sure. sort of way uh, because the book was influenced a lot by Vonnegut. Gotcha. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so, but back to... Um, back to me. Back, See, anyway, I, anyway, back no, to I brought back... <laughs> back to Lance. Can we get no, back I, to Lance? I, I, <laughs> I want to really get to the meat of, of this, this title here. So, okay, yes, it is brought up as, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, let's talk about, you know, alcohol. But um, there's also, there's like a secondary title that I keep forgetting. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, good good, Goodbye Blue Monday or something like that? Goodbye Blue Monday. Goodbye but to Blue Mondays. Goodbye Blue Monday, which is important because it's also, though you should describe the image, it's being said by a cow. Right. Which, if you think about it, is maybe the milk cow, which is discussed by the fellow who was in prison who said, oh, you know what we used to do, the milk cow that supplies the milk? That's where we all had sex. <laughs> so there's a lot, I mean, that cow, the image of that cow has a lot going on. Debauchery. Yeah, yeah. Craziness. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Which, okay, so I think what I'm trying to get at is what is the, what the hell is this book about? Owen, please tell us. Oh, my God. You want please, to Owen. <laughs> please. Oh, I, I, so we don't have to read it. <laughs> okay, so let's see. This is a great question. Uh, it is a brilliant book. Uh, so Vonnegut wrote it, as basically, he says, right for his 50th birthday, that he basically wants to clear out everything. And I don't know. It, 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 any sort of summary is going to be insufficient uh, because it took a book for him to say what the book is about. Right. Uh, but, but he is... There's this idea, and I think the title does come into this. Breakfast of Champions is an ad phrase. He, he, that wasn't a mistake. An, a, a phrase that had meaning only that we gave it, right? And he fills the book with images, maybe memes, right? Mm. The sort of little nuggets of information that have meaning, and maybe the meaning that we give on to, you know, give it to, to as well. And maybe that's what he also is saying about life. That life is not full of meaning. Stories... Are, have led us astray, that things turn out in a way. Everything happens for a reason. This book is clearly saying, nope, things right. happen for no reason. Oh, that's really good. The chemicals yes. just sort of yes. fuck with us and, and, and are not balanced, and that makes us beat up people. And good people have horrible things happen to them, and bad people have wonderful things happen to them, sometimes the opposite. And it, it has no meaning, except maybe the meaning that we... A tribute to it. See, I knew you were going to be a good guest, and I <laughs> knew this was a good book for you to tackle, because I've re read this book many, many times, probably five times. I don't know if that's yeah. many, many or not, but uh, I've read it probably about five times, Yeah. and I still struggle with what it's about, and I love it. It's one of my absolute favorite books of all time, uh, but you're right. It's hard to summarize, but I think you've done a good job. It, it, I think you're right. There is a lot about... 
meaning, like what, and meaning that we impose on things that are meaningless. Uh, the struggle to find why uh, there's so much suffering and why, yeah. and, and to uh, sort of artificially uh, bring, try to bring about joy. It's like these little um, corporate mottos that are meant to be somehow uplifting and yet seem somehow insidious at yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, am I, I don't know, I'm no, rambling, I, but I think, I think you did a good job of summarizing. I completely agree, like, I completely agree. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a weird idea. So you have one character, the, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne, right? Dwayne Hoover? Yes. yes. Who it believes, he's starting to believe that uh, he is uh, the single free will human being, the single free will being on this planet, everyone else is robots. Yes. The right? only real person. The only real person, which is frankly what most of us kind of feel. Anyway. We've all kind of like questioned that at a certain point. It's like, is this all a big experiment on me? Is this yeah. all a big like Truman Show kind of Truman situation? Truman Show, yeah. <laughs> Solipsism. Yes. yes. It, yeah, to an extreme. And uh, and then you have also, you have these artists, like you have, Kurt, you have a Kilgore Trout, yeah, you do have Kurt Vonnegut showing up as well. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. and, and these visual artists as, as well uh, who are creating things and, and there's, yeah, there's sort of the question of like, does any of it mean anything? Mm, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And trying to figure out you know, not only what it means, but how do you bring beauty to it? How do you survive it? How, um, yeah, how do we get through this? Oh, but let, let, me, let me just uh, interrupt here and ruin everything. Oh, good. <laughs> Could we take a step back or, 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 or a step back in time and say, who, who is Kurt Vonnegut? Here's this author who is now 50 years old. The year is 1972, is that correct? 73, I think. 73, right. so I'm two years old. Kurt Vonnegut doesn't know or care that I'm alive, but he's 50, and... He's, he's a veteran of the Second World War yes. who happens to have witnessed a spectacular and extraordinarily tragic event, which is the bombing of Dresden. Yeah. He has come home and he's living through the 1960s. He's writing books. Who the hell is this guy? That's a great point. That's a, I, think, I think it should be noted, the context of where he's coming from, why he thinks the way he thinks. Owen, tell us. <laughs> oh my God! Um, what? Yeah, that, I mean, so Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, it's funny. He's like, as you're summing up his life, uh, it's interesting because I read a lot. I've, I've read almost all of his books. I know you've read all of them. There's some I haven't read yet. But at some point, I started reading more about his life than his books. And it's not that his life is that extraordinary. He did, like, yes, he was a prisoner of war uh, and experienced the, the firebombing of Dresden, uh, which was a key moment in his life. And then he started writing. He was not a success. Mm. Like, he was writing novels that were not a big hit. And then he sort of in his 40s became, started becoming a big hit. And his novels that he had put out earlier that had been published but not gone terrifically noticed. Started becoming a big, bigger and bigger. And then he had the wild thing that his sister died. Mm. His sister that he that is wild. He considered his reader, his one reader. He talked mm. about Vonnegut would say, "I write. You know, best way to write is write with one reader in mind." <laughs> and that was his sister. And she died. He adopted her children into his own family and 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 into that marriage. And and I think that actually is part of who he is as well. Yeah. Um, and, and it's an interesting thing. I, I ended up reading The Letters of Kurt Vonnegut. It came out some years ago. So many books of Vonnegut lectures or words or letters that have come out since his death because people like 
us will buy anything that says Vonnegut on it. <laughs> right. um, and, and I was like kind of shocked to find out, this is such a weird thing, he wasn't very happy. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I, 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 excuse me, but I, I have to interrupt you. Yes. And you <laughs> say that surprisingly he wasn't very happy. I have to say that I was barely <laughs> able to make it through uh, as I read this book, because I found it so painfully cynical mm-hmm. and angry, and it seemed to me to be the words of a man who is in anguish and who hated the world. Am I completely off base? Well, there's an interesting thing. There's a moment in this book where, where Vonnegut says, here's the spiritual heart of the book. And he, it, it's, it's, again, it's... it's it's towards the end. We are in the, the arts festival in this town. And uh, there's the visual artist. And they're in the hotel lobby bar, right? Or the hotel bar. And it's the guy, I, I'm blanking on his name. But he's basically, it's the Temptation of St. Anthony. And it's just a stripe. It's like, oh, yes. He yes, sold yes. it. Like it's, it's sold for like $40,000 right. or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a stripe. It's an orange stripe against an avocado green background. <laughs> and he says, after all his cynicism, after, after all his, I mean, I, I, I suppose you could call it cynicism or just honest appraisal of life mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. He says, I, every, at the core of every human being is a, a vibrant beam of light. Mm. And, th- and that is who we are. So Vonnegut, I, I suppose you could call it cynicism or, or maybe it's pessimism with hope or... I don't know. There's something that's sort of wild about saying, I am very aware. I've seen the worst of us, and I'm not going to close my eyes. In fact, in throughout this whole book, I am going to describe our world as if I'm a newcomer, as if I'm an alien. So he's going to describe everything from erections to war beavers. to the to beavers, yes, <laughs> with what is a key to the humor with this sort of uh, distance, as if I'm an alien who just landed on mm, Earth. Yes. And, and it's, it's or, or a, like a distant uh, historian looking back of like, this is what life used to be. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny because it's like, oh my gosh, when you say it like that, yeah, it's absurd yeah. what we do. Um, and yet, even with all that, he does have this sort of glimpse of like, but, but we, we can do something with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would say it's this, it's not like, Finding, I, I think this is in the book too. It's not that you find meaning in the chaos or trying, he talks about like we keep wanting to make the chaos into order, find order in the chaos. It's instead that we find peace with the chaos. Something like that? Well, in, in response to LB's question, I mean, I, I, I think it's a very important question and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a hard one to answer. For me, this was my uh, Catcher in the Rye. Uh, this was the book that I read when I was early 20s and f- felt very, very understood and felt very uh, comforted by, by someone calling attention to the awfulness of life in the way that he does, in the creative, playful way that he does. I mean, he's talking about different dimensions and he's doing different, uh, he's, he's making little doodles that are really silly and irreverent and, and it felt so good to, to tear down certain things that we as a society kind of sometimes hold up um, as, as sacred uh, and and not 
I don't know, it's very difficult to put into words. Uh, he, and I think that's why I've, I've you know, just devoured everything that he ever read because, I mean, he wrote, uh, because every one of his books has this sort of feel to it that's like, uh, it's, it's terrible. It, it describes the world as, like you said, someone who is as in anguish, and yet there's this hint of, but we're all in this together, I get it, I understand, and in that understanding comes some sort of camaraderie. Or I hesitate to say hope. It sounds kind of corny or hokey, but there's something in there about being understood and that we're all in this together, and it's like we're all this little beam of light, right? I don't know. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's like, because I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, maybe it's this of like, we're, we're, t we're taught about hope from an early age. And then at some point we start to realize that the stories that our folks told us, whether it's about justice or it all works out in the end or everything happens for a reason, is just not true. Right. And then finally we find a voice somewhere along the way that speaks truth and says, look, this is the hard things of life. And when we read that, it's only after reading that we go, now that we agree on this, or at least some of us do, <laughs> yeah. now there's at least the chance of true hope or something, as yeah. opposed to the sort of fake uh, false hope. Yeah, there's a, an understanding, a genuineness. Yeah. A, uh, a, yeah, it's hard to put into words, but it, it is uplifting in, a, in an interesting and real way. Yeah, yeah. LB, do you think this is all bullshit? <laughs> no, I think, I'm, I'm, I think you've answered my question. Um, and now I wonder if we shouldn't uh, get a little more into the meat of the story. Mm. The, the story. The story itself, which is, which I think one of the, the, the funnest things about this book is that it's about an author in large part, uh, and it, it like diverges, or what do you call that? Uh, it, um, it digresses yes. into, his, into many of his stories where there's just be a, like a paragraph here and there of like, and then he wrote a story about such and such, and it's they're all so creative and yeah. so silly, and yet so, um, I don't know, just real and cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, there's funny, as a writer myself, uh, and you guys same way, like I, I, there's always sort of a point of, for me of like, oh, you stick to a point of view. Maybe in the next chapter you can have someone else's point of view, right? But but basically you're like you're with one character. Mm -hmm. Even if you're third person, you're really over the shoulder of one character for that section. And then the right. next section you maybe go to another character. But Vonnegut's like, no, 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 I'm going to jump around. I'm going to jump around. As someone once pointed out to me, and I thought this was really insightful in the book, that maybe it's going up against the point of view of like, hey. One person in this, in this book starts to believe that they are the only real human, the only real person in existence. But Vonnegut, in his whole style, is like every character, any one of these people, the waitress pouring the drinks, I'm going to go off and tell her complete life story. Um, you know, this other person, the trucker, you know, giving mm. Kilgore Trout. I'll tell his whole story or whatever it is that every character is of as much value. Mm. And that's kind of like the digressions. Yeah. Like, the heart of this book is digressions, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and and I try to, to allude to that a little bit. You know, you said you 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 know referenced Vonnegut in my book. Why so much? I have Nancy, the young writer, who is trying to write, and yeah. there's little bits of like here's a little story that she wrote, and it was all totally ripped off. Yeah, it's like Breakfast of Champions, you know, with Kilgore Trout's stories. 
So Kil- there you go. Kilgore Trout is pretty damn good. <laughs> uh. And you know, the there's Trout actually, it. there is a book by Kilgore Trout, uh, Venus on a Half Shell. Yes, Johnny Holden was just telling me about it. Or the, the keyboard player during yeah. the One Page Salon was telling me about that. I've and never read it. For the longest time, I have a copy. And for the longest time, I thought it was actually written by Vonnegut. I think it's fan fiction. Oh, it's not Vonnegut. It is not Vonnegut. Interesting. Um, but so if, you, if you're just tuning in, Kilgore Trout is one of the, Trout is one of the main characters of the book who's a, a writer of such power that he essentially transforms the entire world into a... Kilgore Trout Society of yes, sorts, right? Yes, that's what we're told is the future. Yes, in the future, this character's writing, which is being published only in the form of uh, filler. As you know, uh, you may know, at one time, pornographic pictures could only be printed in, in any publication legally if there was accompanying text, however irrelevant the text was to the images, uh, in, because that gave it uh, an appeal beyond the Purian interest. So... It was necessary to put text with your porno pictures, and so the, in Kilgore Trout's writing is being published that way as as uh, as filler text to go with these pictures of open beavers. Yes. That's the only way he can get published. So, and and these stories that he writes are just these preposterous little weird sci-fi things where I can't even remember. I can't remember any of them right now. But but see, one of them is like, like there's a planet where they're so good at making art and preserving art that they start. A kind of like a lottery system of which art is going to be considered the Mona Lisa, the, mm. the sort of masterpiece yeah. of the time, and which will be destroyed and stuff like that. Right, yes. And also he writes the short story, Kilgore Trite writes a short, short story that inspires Dwayne, Wayne, Dwayne? Uh, Dwayne, 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 Dwayne. Yeah. Yes, to, uh, to consider himself the only living being because Kilgore Trite r- writes a story about the man. Right, addressing, right? Yes. You are, yeah, the reader. You are the only real human. The only real human. Everyone else is robots. Right, yeah. yes. Which is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for one of us. We don't know who. So he's down and out, and he's, he, he's been invited to some festival um, at the hotel where Dwayne Hoover, he owns the hotel? Or I well, Dwayne, Dwayne owns a Pontiac dealership That's in this right. town, and the town is basically Indianapolis, but it's not called that. It's like, uh, I forget what it's called, but, but yeah, Dwayne owns the Pontiac dealership. He also happens to co-own the uh, hotel and about half the town, and we're told at the very, very beginning that the chemicals in his head are out of balance. That's it. There's not like a moral or existential aspect. It's the chemicals are out of balance, and he starts to go crazy. So as he's going crazy, Kilgore Trout is approaching this town, and as Vonnegut tells us, the whole thing is about these two meeting. Right, yes. And that's one of the great things that I've also totally borrowed, ripped off from Vonnegut, is a lot of times he will tell you what is going to happen. He will say, okay... Later on in this book, here's what's going to happen. Yeah. And you're waiting for that the whole time. And it's like this, it, especially in Sirens of Titan. Mm. It's like Sirens of Titan is, is beautiful that way where it says, okay, here's what's going to happen. But he sets it up in such a way you're like, how in the world are we going to get to that right. spot? And it's just brilliant and beautiful. Um, yes, he does that in a lot of books. He, he, he tells you right at the very beginning of the book, everything in the book that's going to happen. <laughs> right. Why he wrote the book, what the symbols are, what the symbolism means. Yeah. He's like, there's a symbol in this book. Here's what it means. So, you know, keep an eye out for that. <laughs> yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Do you, do you like that or not like that? I like it. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a dare to the reader. It's like, I dare you to keep reading when I've just told you the entire damn story already. But the brilliance of it, too, though, a lot of times it's the kind of thing where it's so far-fetched, like, the, 
the setup is in no way hints at how it's going to get to that spot. So in, in a way, it's a brilliant technique where it yeah. says, here's where we're going. Now, here's where we're starting. You know, it's really not even a dare to the reader. It's a dare to himself. He's like, I, I dare myself <laughs> to give away the story and then tell the story in such an interesting way that the fact that I've just given the whole thing away doesn't matter, and you're still going to want to read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, I was just hearing, I heard a lecture. I wish I remember the fellow who did this lecture. And he did this lecture, and he's talking about stories and how stories surprise us with also giving us exactly what the, we expect. And he was talking about Oedipus. And so in Oedipus, like, the prophecy's there, right? That there's something, you yes. know. So Oedipus finding out that, you know, oh, my God, you killed your father and you married your mother is not the twist of the story. It's mm. not the big surprise of the yeah. story. I mean, and the chorus in the play, the chorus is telling us too. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They tell us where the story's gonna go. The moment is Oedipus's reaction to that when he gouges out his eyes. And that was the moment where the Greeks were like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> uh, well, also then there's also the irony, which is that he is the one who is tasked with finding the killer yes. of his father and, and killing him, punishing yeah. him. So there's that, yeah, it's like we're going to tell you who killed the guy's father, but we don't know ahead of time that he's going to be the one whose job it is to find the killer. Right, right. So there's, there's like, yeah, there's an ironic twist. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so uh, Kilra makes it to the, uh, uh, the festival, yep. and there is the meeting that we've been promised. Uh, and right about that time, mm. another character enters. And it is Vonnegut himself, and it's not the kind of thing where he writes in first person and he's just like like uh, Holden Caulfield writing the story. It's him actually saying, I have written this story. He says, I think verbatim, I am writing myself into this story. I am creating this story, and, and yet here I am, yeah. and I'm inter interfacing with the characters that I've created. And I think he even goes so far as to say, like, uh, I, I, I can... I'm, he even uh, introduces himself to yes. Kilgore and says, I am your creator. Yes. I've written you. And then he, in, to prove it to him, he teleports him to, like, uh, you know, the Taj Mahal or something. Yes, right. <laughs> and then back. And says, see, I can, all I have to do is write it down. It's, you know, it's interesting when you talk about that, those, those, those devices because the, it suddenly brings to mind Tom Wolfe, who was sort of determined in his life to try and oppose that kind of writing completely and, 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 and defied the entire literary world by saying that this is a terrible thing to do, this postmodern <laughs> technique of acknowledging that you're the one writing the book and stuff, and, and that he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everyone the keys to the kingdom, he said, by telling you how to write a novel and to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, like we've said, I think, many times in this podcast, in, in the hands of... of a lesser talent, it might very well be mm -hmm. a disaster. But somehow, Vonnegut is, is just brilliant. And it's, it's funny, and too. And it's just Tom Wolfe's opinion, too. <laughs> yeah. But like Vonnegut, like Vonnegut in the book, he writes himself, and he, he's, he's like, he's not a, he's got problems with his penis. I mean, even when Vonnegut, <laughs> he gets surprised. Right. Even gets as surprised. a fictional character, he's writing himself right? as miserable. Yes, he is. <laughs> he gets surprised by a dog that he forgot that he had written in an earlier draft. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and then he talks about like, you know, I, I don't quite completely control my characters. He talks about like, it's like pulling on a string. Now this, this is a point I really wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. And that is that 
as you're reading this, as a writer, you start to sort of I understand that concept of, I, in order to, to write a believable character, it does have to have a mind of its own in a way, yeah. where you set up the situation, and then you let the logic of the situation that you've created sort of dictate where it yeah. takes itself, yeah. right? Um, and do you know the endings of your books? Do oh, you, no. Do you know where your characters are headed? No, no, no. I, I mean, it, so, yeah, it, what Vonnegut says is, like, the, I can kind of control my characters. I've, it's like I'm pulling on a string from a distance, right? I believe. Right, it's, yes. And then and that sort of, sort of makes a move, but not, not exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I lie to myself and say I know <laughs> where my book is going, and I know I'm lying to myself. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's basically, it's the, like, it helps me get out of town. Yeah. Like I write a map right, right, and I right. go, oh, I'm gonna take this route out of town. I know I'm gonna get lost or turn or find something interesting and go off in that direction. Yeah. But I, I feel I can't start the journey. That is a great, great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And I that that's and then characters, hopefully they do. They do surprise you. They do something that's that's weird. And I think you're right. Like when they start doing that, it's it's evidence of I, I'm not authentic. They are fake. <laughs> they're <laughs> right. just words on a page. <laughs> but they, they, they have some sort of life in whatever that means. I think that just means that, that you're creating a believable character, right? That, yeah. That, I mean, you, if you created a character and they just had him go just do whatever you had planned in the first place, but you didn't create a character that would that would do that, yeah. right? Then you... Well, it's, it's funny. We talk about this postmodern detachment and so forth. And, and yet when you think about the act of reading or writing... It's built in, right? I mean, it's, we think of it as a postmodern, as, as a as a present day idea, but it's built into the process that you know you're looking at a bunch of symbols on a piece of paper, and you're creating a reality in your head as you do it. It's inherently abstract and inherently unreal, and inherently lends itself to things like. Uh, putting the writer in there or, or the string that pulls the character from a distance. You know, it, it's a reminder of how uh, mediated the, the entire world of literary uh, existence is. And it might be too, you're totally right. You know, Brecht had this like, Brecht was uh, with his uh, sort of early 1900s, uh, yeah, early 1900s plays and musicals where he like, listen, I'm going to, put this thing out that says, this is act two. This is yeah. the scene. This and is not real. This is not real. Constantly telling the audience, almost in a laughing way, like, this is not real. Like, Mother Courage, you're going to see Mother Courage's son die. Not real. Not real. Constantly telling the audience, not real. And it was a bit of a trick. And I don't know if, if Brecht thought of it as that as a trick, but it's the same thing Vonnegut does. Mm. Like, I'm going to tell you it's not real. It's not real. And part of us goes, aha, good. I can let my guard down because I know right. it's not real. And then we end up feeling for a character that we've been told is not real. But even if he hadn't have said that, we already know it's not real. Like, we're, we're, we're buying into it. That's the nature of, of storytelling. It's the nature of experience. Well, that's what right. they say in My Dinner with Andre about Brecht. Yeah. Right? They talk about how... You, we need we need a theater. We need literature that is uh, that is deliberately setting a distance between the read the audience and the art, because reality is so powerfully overwhelming to our senses that we're no longer capable of perceiving it directly, and that we actually need to be told that something is false in order to even accept a little bit of its truth into our consciousness. Otherwise, we'll just reject it the way we reject reality all the time. Could it also be, uh, in a way, sort of disarming any criticism of, you know, uh, oh, well, this isn't real. And you say, yes, you're right, it's not real. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, uh, I that, so. that you can... Well, uh, that, that cynicism again, yeah. 
But I don't know if that's what Vonnegut's doing. Like, Vonnegut, like, the very, very end of the book, spoilers, <laughs> but the very, very end of the book, which is when Vonnegut, the written creator of the book, I am your creator, and, and maybe he's saying, like, in this sense, I am your god, right? Yes. And he's a, a, a god who, what, hurts his own testicles as he trips over <laughs> right. and all these, uh-huh. yes. and he's, like, but then he, and he can't quite control things and everything like that, and he's talking to Kilgore Trout, and... And then there's this moment, which I love in the book, as Vonnegut's like going away. And Vonnegut's already said his clever stuff. He's done that. He's like the clever and the point and the sort of philosophical thematic aspects are already, already there. And then you have Kilgore Trout, if I'm re- remembering correctly, calling out, make me young. Mm. Make me young again. And that is such a, a real moment of yes. like, it's such an, all of a sudden Kilgore Trout, who's, uh, you know, Arguably one of the more cartoonish yeah. of, of Vonnegut's characters has this moment that is utterly real and just uh, just from whatever fictional heart is there. <laughs> this guy is saying, listen, I just met the writer of the book that I live in. Would you just make me young? <laughs> yeah. And that strikes me. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes. It's so honest right. that I feel like there's a real heartbeat in there. A heartbeat, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, uh, Vonnegut is fantastic at, at creating that that heartbeat, that human, that human touch. Um, beautiful, right. beautiful. I'm glad we did this searing, one. Searing, cruel, yeah, painful. Yes. What were what were the others that we had considered? And yet, it was hilarious. <laughs> of course, Slaughterhouse Five yeah. is another big one of his. Yeah. Um, Cat's Cradle. Yes. Mother Night. Mother Night was another one we talked about. What's your second? Uh, well, I. I'm assuming oh. this is your favorite. This may, no, may not I, be your favorite. What is your favorite? Is. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. Okay, gotcha. And the reason why is, uh, so Vonnegut, when, I, I, I was late to Vonnegut. I was already in college, and I had not read Vonnegut. And my brother, my brother Gwyn, uh, was writing before, I, and he's like, yeah, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, he wrote this book, Slaughterhouse-Five. It's about slaughterhouses in uh, New York and why they should be shut down. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's, uh, but I didn't know. And then I was working at a basically a city park uh, daycare, like basically like a, an after school and summer daycare thing. That was sort of my job, and hang out with kids. And I was so exhausted at one point. And I was hanging out with these kids and playing with them and working jobs and taking classes. And I saw, for whatever reason, in the kids' little carpeted area where they have the little snacks and. Reese's Pieces, whatever they're eating that day, there was, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, next to, you know, don't give uh, the pigeon a cookie or whatever <laughs> book was there. And I was like, what is this? And, this is the, and I started reading it, and I just devoured that book, and I just loved it. And I was like, I didn't, I remember thinking, like, I didn't know you could write this way. Right. I didn't know this was allowed. Yeah. Have- I think that's, yeah, I think that, that moment, like I said, this was my, uh, uh, you know, um, Catcher in the Rye moment in in feeling so understood yeah. uh, in my bitterness as a young man, <laughs> but but also you're right that same feeling of I didn't know you could do this. Yeah. Uh, it really opens up your mind to like oh uh, writing can express so much more than I ever thought it really could. Yeah. Uh, um, ironically, it turns out you can't do it. Oh no, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut is is now dead. Oh. <laughs> Is that what did it to him? I'm afraid so. My he, he broke the rules and he paid the price. <laughs> he paid the, the <laughs> ultimate no price. I did think, though, like, look, looking back at this book now, I've read it a few times, and reading it now, I'm so 47, he wrote it around the same time, basically, in his mm, life. Right. One thing is like, oh, good. 
if, if he can write a great right, book, I was sure, like, oh, good. Sure. My, you know, maybe, maybe I can still do something. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, like, it, it feels darker. Like you were saying, LB. Like, yeah, because I had not read it before. And I'm telling oh, you, really? this book was, is dark. I think it's a darker book to someone in their 40s than it is to someone in their 20s. I'll tell you what I found incredibly dark. The description of the communist and the non-communist world where he says very quickly and sort of flippantly that the communists believe that the people who have too much should share with other people and that here in America, we don't believe that people should share with other people and so we're not communists. And I was just <laughs> like, oh, you're talking about the most monstrous system of tyranny ever devised by the human mind which has enslaved billions and murdered hundreds of millions of people. Capitalism? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I do remember uh, the last time I read it being a little incensed by how anti-American it can seem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, anything is, I think it's legitimate to be anti-American, I guess, and to, to have any, any range of views, but it, it's, I guess it was the emotional the emotional underpinning that, that really struck me. It just seemed to me, this is a guy who is, who is just consumed with rage, who just wants to destroy things, you know? Mm. And, and, and in a way that I guess we can all identify with. I mean, who, am I, who has never wanted to tear things down? But... Uh, you know, wait a second, though. I don't know if he does want to destroy things. I, but I think he, he's... I mean, I would say Vonnegut, like in this book and his other books, he does seem that he's cynical and thinks it's all awful. All the systems mm -hmm. seem sort of terrible, except family. Family is something like extended family, something he kind of st starts on a little bit here and kind of builds on in later books. Right. Like if only we could have bigger concept of family. Um, but besides that, he seems like governments and cultural systems and art is all kind of a loss to him. But I don't yeah. know if he wants to destroy anything. Yeah, yes, right. you're right. And, I, that's and, true. I and shouldn't I, say that. And, and I, I was careful to say uh, seem anti-American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it can certainly seem that way because he dissects the uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, is it? Or maybe it's the no National Anthem, I think. In, yeah, in yeah. the intro of this book, he basically dissects that and, and talks about how uh, uh, alienating it can be to look at a dollar bill mm. and see all these arcane symbols <laughs> and just and and from from a, a a system that we should feel uh, a certain nurturing from we instead get this sort of like uh, just this arcane weird imagery that doesn't yeah, the, tell the us pyramid anything with the eyeball happy, floating right. over it that yes, nobody exactly. knows what the exactly. hell it is <laughs> and I think if if you take his work as a whole I don't think that it's anti-American and I don't think it's pro-communist. Uh, in in a, the stricter political sense, right? right. Um, I think he's he he um, likes to dissect uh, uh, ideologies and and wants to sort of uh, recontextualize systems to, so that we can sort of get a better view of, like you said, sort of remove ourselves from it. He talk, you know, a lot of this is is uh, it talks about different dimensions or uh, right. uh, you know tries to describe systems that we are so familiar with that we've lost all objectivity. Yeah. Um, and so he wants to sort of describe it as if an, you were an alien coming yeah. from a different planet. 
Um, and that's probably what led him to so much of his science fiction. Yeah. Exactly. And he exactly. definitely wasn't a, a fan of the Soviet Union. You know, he had his uh, translator who was in there, and he worked very hard to try and get his tra- his Russian translator to be able to come out. Yes, for, yes. And, and he worked hard. In fact, this book, if I remember correctly, was was banned in the Soviet Union uh, because of beaver references. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I, I believe so, yeah. The, so, the beaver is a very sacred animal to well, the I don't, I don't, I'm not sure it was that kind of beaver. I'm not sure. It's, a, it's, unclear. it's unclear. I think it's both kinds of beavers in there. <laughs> well, on that note, yeah, I am sorry. hearing some, some distant rumbling. It's hard to tell at night, but it does seem like the, star, the sky is darkening. Yes, which There's means... There's a rumbling of thunder on the horizon. Lightning is coming. Are you ready for our lightning round, Owen? I am so ready. Are He's you? ready. He's okay. ready. Fantastic. This doesn't happen very often. Oh, I'm not. Maybe I'm not ready. <laughs> no, no, he's ready. I just was ready to say ready. Okay. Do you? Are you even familiar with what, what's I'm coming? I'm not familiar what's about with to, the lightning hit you round. In the face. Something fast. Yes. Uh, this is the Faster. part of our uh, uh, <laughs> podcast where we ask the same questions of every guest. No. And you uh, you can answer quickly or you can answer very slowly. It doesn't matter. It's, no. The, the, the title is actually a little misleading. Yeah. Um, but, but it is uh, sort of meant to be um, quick questions with um, meaningful answers, oh. whether they're quick or not. Okay. okay. So here we go. Uh, tell us about the first time you fell in love with a book. Ooh. You know, it's funny. I, I, in some ways, I w- would say that God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. That was uh, oh. a huge moment for me. But maybe actually even before that, um, there was a book called Klutz. It was about a robot. The robot's initials were <laughs> K-L-U-T-Z, Klutz. <laughs> and as you might guess, the robot was awkward. It's not, not a graceful, a graceful, it's not a graceful robot. robot. <laughs> and uh, I don't really remember much out of the plot except that, but I remember really reading that and going, boy, this is so cool. That could be a this Kilgore Trout novel. Could be, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think books have uh, often changed my mind. Um, and... and, and the best ways, I mean, there's definitely the times when you're like, gosh, I was thinking about this, but now I'm thinking that. And I, I like those moments. And that happens, I think, with nonfiction. I think the better ways are when uh, a book kind of moves against your brain like waves against the sand mm. and starts to carve it out slowly. I think mm. Vonnegut would have a lot with that. When I was first reading God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, it actually wasn't exactly what you were saying, Lance. It wasn't my sort of like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been thinking. Um, you know, when I started reading God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, I was a pretty devout, um, reading Vonnegut overall, I was a pretty devout a Christian mm. uh, who felt that things happened for a reason and that there was meaning to to the universe. And uh, I, I loved the way that these books carved out something different. Not all at once. It wasn't like it's point to a moment like, aha, I believe differently now. But instead, how these books and these narratives and these stories uh, carved out the coast of my mind. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's beautiful. Well, here's the, uh, the follow-up. The bigger brother of, of that question is, has a book ever changed your life? It can so, be one of your own books, even. Oh, well, that's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. Of a, I mean, um, has a book ever changed my life? Uh, it, so it was interesting. I recently, so I mentioned that my, my first novel... Uh, which did not change anything. Uh, but my first novel, uh, Marshall Hollinger is Driving, the classic Marshall Hollinger is Driving, I, I recently went back and I was 
rereading it. And it was interesting to read a book that you wrote 20 years ago. Uh, I think it's a bit of an impression. I don't know if you guys feel this about things that you made 20 years ago, but for me, it was like, you, it's like building a, a window in your life and you can look out that window. And that's the view that you have yes. at that point. And then you walk away and you do a bunch of other stuff. And luckily I can go back and like, I can open up this window again hmm. and look out and like, oh my God, that's the view. And it looks different to me now. There's Joe. Right outside the window. Joe, you've been out here the whole time. I usually go, what you a look the same. window. I was such an idiot to even cut this thing out. That is part, totally part of the journey, too. Like, why? Why would I want to look in that direction, even? Uh, but rereading it, I mean, one of the early lines of this one character is he, in, in the summer of his 28th year, this guy named Walter reads uh, the book of Luke and God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. <laughs> and if I remember, it reads God bless you, Mr. Rosewater and the book of Luke. And uh, the first book he agreed with, the second one he believed. Mm. Uh, and so at that was <laughs> point in my life, I think uh, those two would, would kind of play with that. Like uh, uh, those books in different ways changed my life. Beautiful. Marvelous. Marvelous. Has a book ever made you cry? Oh, yeah, all the time. I can't, come on. <laughs> you I'm, baby. I weep. I weep. I mean, gosh, I, I weep all the time now. I, I weep more now than I ever have. My kids, geez, like I go see like, you know, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. <laughs> right. And they're like, Dad, this is, stop weeping. Stop like, it's as, Angry as, Birds, uh, the movie. Has the, the only label one. of a shampoo bottle ever made you cry? <laughs> it was, yeah, a little, I mean, come on. Was it kid? No More Tears? <laughs> <laughs> Ironically. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> nice. As a book, oh no, no, uh, the next one is name a book you've uh, read more than once. Oh, uh, well, Vonnegut's books. I mean, I read uh, book of, uh, uh, Breakfast of Champions um, a number of times, and God bless you, Miss Rosewater, Slaughterhouse Five, without a doubt. I'm actually a pretty slow reader, so I don't often read books mm. more than once. Uh, Great Gatsby okay. is another one um, I've, uh, I've reread. Um, but there's not been actually a bunch. What what makes you want to reread a book? You know, I think, let's see if I remember right. There was a writer who talked about the experience. There's two writers who do this. Um, one, it's called Severe Mercy. There's a book called Severe Mercy, which is a memoir about a fellow who fell in love uh, in a big way. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis, and he talks about his wife's death. And he wrote a book, and in that he talked about the joy of reading is always in the rereading, which struck me. Yes. And then Walker Percy talks about this in The Moviegoer, another book I've reread. And Walker Percy, in that one, um, he talks about the experience of doing something the first time and then maybe years later doing something the second time and you've made a parenthesis around a corner of your life or a section of your life. Hmm. And, and that strikes me. But I think, actually, the answer goes back to that window. So I think about, for example, rereading... God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, or Breakfast of Champions, or Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. And like, I remember reading that when I was, what, 28 for Movie Goer. Like, oh my gosh, how this made me view the world. It's a window. I didn't make this window. I'm looking through someone else's window. What would it be to look through that window now? And uh, I think that's yeah. probably. You know what it is? It's a leak. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Ooh, good. Nice cut. <laughs> okay, here comes the big one. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have any poetry committed to memory? And I don't. And no is a perfectly valid answer. Yeah, it I, is a yes or no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think if I did, because I used to. It's funny, because uh, you know, I do the three questions for one-page salon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked, I talked, my, my, my question was like, what book would you 
have memorized tonight? Like, if you could choose any book, what would it be that we'd right, have memorized? Sure. And my initial question was, like, do you have anything from memorized? I used to. I used to have... Um, well, I used to have scripture. I would <laughs> this is going back again, way, way back. Uh, and then I would have like a little tidbits of like uh, some Fitzgerald uh, okay. memorized, not poetry, but uh, but prose. Um, but uh, like, for example, like really, if I could, I would love to have Leaves of Grass memorized. Uh, you know, Walt Whitman's Do poetry, it. I go Do back it. to again and again. Um, and that's like, if I had to carry something with me, it would be Walt Whitman's poetry. But um, but I don't. I don't have things memorized. Isn't that weird? Because you know what I can say? What? You know what I can, I can say? Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know not everybody <laughs> has got a body like you. But I got to think twice before I give my heart away. Because well, I know all the it. games you play because I play them too. You so have, I know all the lyrics to You lied to us. You have only so much hard drive space in your <laughs> yes. head. That and it's got to be saved you, for Do the all beef patties, the special sauce, lettuce, cheese. cheese. Pickles, yeah. onions. On a sesame seed yes, bun. Yes, sir. But I haven't memorized Walt Whitman. What the <laughs> hell is wrong with me? Do you think, uh, like in a Jason Bourne kind of way, anything could spark back up any of that scripture? Oh, gosh. In a Jason Bourne type way, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I, I bet you guys do, though. Uh, but um, I once heard uh, writing prose, uh, like someone was saying, like if you someone's asked a writer, like is is it autobiographical? And the writer said, yes, yes, it's all autobiographical, mm. um, but in the wrong order. So I don't know about you, but like <laughs> mm -hmm. in the same way that you're having a dream, it's like oh my gosh, I'm I'm in the 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 room where I got married, and there's my gym coach from seventh grade, mm. uh, and he's talking right. to my grandmother yes. who died yes. when I was, you know, all right. these different things. Absolutely. So that's what happens you're when sampling. you're writing. Sampling. You're sampling. <laughs> you sa yeah, that's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 well, um, so yeah, it's like all the details, um, like whether it's what you've read or what you consumed from television or the conversation you've had, those all, I mean, You've, you got to feed your life to feed your art. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think that's so true that, that when you're writing, those things are going to pop. Absolutely. They're going to come yeah, up. Yeah. They're going to bubble up. So, um, yeah, I think in a Jason Bourne kind of way, <laughs> it's all in yeah, there. It's all, yeah. You put it in the stew. So if you sample it and you don't like it, well, maybe put different ingredients in. I like that. <laughs> Folks, I introduced Owen as, the, as Austin's premier entertainer. He's, he's, he's also a, a consummate artist. <laughs> A brilliant writer has written many books that you must read. Uh, the only one we talked about is a Marshall Holmes' right. Driving. Yes, Holmes. yes. Well, okay, it's still so, out so, there, so goddammit. You can find novel. it and read it. What about... No, we don't have to say... Hollow is my most recent novel. Hollow is his most Hollow. recent novel. What a marvelous book with Thank a marvelous you. concept. He's also directed... Uh, some horror movies that are very excellent, and uh, God knows what else. He's, he's this just uh, master pancake, and uh, just just a true amazing creator here in town. Well, and we're so, very very grateful to thanks. have him. So you're you're um, do you still have a, a movie on Netflix? Yeah, Mercy okay. Black is on Mercy Netflix. Black. Right now. Mercy yeah. Black is on Netflix, folks. So check, check it check out. out. Mercy Black. Uh, go to Amazon and buy Hollow. Also <laughs> buy Why So Much by Lance Myers. Also yes. buy The Goddamn Fool by LBDO. That is a great trio of books. Fantastic trio. My gosh, if you have that on the shelf of your soul, you're, you're on your way <laughs> to something. This Think has been the Persistence it, of Vision podcast with Owen Edgerton. <laughs> go to our website. It is pov-publishing.com. And there you can read all kinds of cool stuff and follow links to all, even more cool stuff. 
And remember, folks, we love you, but that guy sitting next to you, we hate him. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Owen Edgerton. Thank you, Union Brooks, super intern. And thank you to our audience. We love you. Thank you, North Door. Yeah. See ya. Good night. <laughs>